Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening and welcome. This is an educational podcast of sorts that'll help you, hopefully, better understand your compliance obligations. We hope you'll enjoy these additional materials. And as always, if you're one of our ongoing comprehensive clients, don't hesitate to reach out with your questions because at Advisor Compliance Services, we love to talk compliance. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming back with us. If you've been listening for a while, you know that usually it's Lori and me, Scott. In this installment, it's just going to be me. Uh, And the reason is it's pretty basic and straightforward stuff. I'm here to talk to you a little bit about the custody review that you're going to be doing for 2022. There's really not too terribly much of substance to talk about in this. It's kind of more just a a step-by-step walkthrough of the custody review report. Folks have a tendency to have questions about them. So I'm just going to kind of go quickly question by question. If I have any comments or anything of interest to add to them, I will try and address them there. Any kind of stumbling blocks that there may be, anything that I'm used to hearing clients ask. So beginning at the very beginning, let's start with the first question. Are we fully up to date with custody rules so we know if we've taken custody of clients, funds, or securities? You know, the, the options you have are yes, no, and not applicable. Not applicable should not be an answer uh, at this point, I don't think. Uh, I feel like everybody kind of knows what the custody rule is. Everybody knows that if you have access to clients' funds or security, the ability to withdraw them, anything like that, you've got custody of one kind or another. One of the ways that folks usually don't think about it or don't, you know, don't consider it, and, and it'll this will get into it, is there are a few ways that you know, just about everybody kind of sort of has a form of custody. It's really a question of whether or not the custody that you've got is the sort of custody that requires that you get the surprise annual audit. And the two biggest ones are a direct fee deduction and standing letters of authorization. Those have exceptions that are attached to them that allow you to avoid the surprise annual audit. So with respect to the issue of direct fee deduction, we'll just knock out the quick safeguards Right now, that'll help you avoid the surprise annual audit and, and, and note that you know these change from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, SEC and state and among the states. So you'll have to look it up on your own and check out what they say. But the gist is, is that if you've got it custody by virtue of having fees directly deducted from client advisory accounts, you've got you've to meet the following safeguards. You have to have written authorization from your client to deduct those advisory fees. So it's usually going to be found in your agreement. It's certainly going to be in the custodial documents that you've got. And each time a fee is du- deducted from the client, the ad- you've got to concurrently send a qualified custodian an invoice for the amount of the fee to be deducted, and then send the invoice uh, or send an invoice itemizing the fee to the client. Those are the ones that kind of vary a little bit jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And then finally, one other thing that kind of varies a little bit by jurisdiction is some jurisdictions, like for you, when you're sending the invoice, itemizing the fee to the client, also have a legend in there that urges the client to compare the the invoice that you've sent them with the report that they're going to get back from the custodian. And that'll allow you to avoid that surprise annual audit as a result of direct fee deduction. Standing letter of the, letters of authorization, just as a quick recap, SLOAs for short, are letters of authorization from your client that just kind of continue until they're canceled by the client. Sometimes some folks call them move money forms or move money transform forms. There's lots of different words or phrases that the custodia use for that. The bottom line is is it, it saves the client time. They don't have to rewrite a letter each month that says, hey, can you please take X amount out of this account and move it into this account? 
There are two different types. There are first-party standing letters of authorization and third-party standing letters of authorization. The first-party standing letters of authorization are much less problematic. There aren't that many things that you have to deal with or follow. And again, we're going to kind of we're going to run back into these, but I'm just sort of giving them to you up front so you know what I'm talking about when I get to them. In those first-party ones, what that is is it's, it's a like-titled account, right? So, for example, if you were moving money from Scott Snipke IRA to Scott Snipke checking account, that's a first-party SLOA. A third-party SLOA is a little bit different. It's a non-like-titled account. And that could be just about any sort of variation in terms of titling. And I'll use my own personal situation as an example here. My wife, she hasn't changed anything about you know, her name. And so the, the key is, is here, we've got a checking account that is the Scott Snipke and Josette Savage joint checking account. So if you're taking money from Scott Snipke's IRA and putting it in the Scott Snipke and Josette Savage joint checking account, that's a non-like titled account. And so you're going to have to meet the various requirements or safeguards for third-party SLOAs. There are seven of them. One through five don't really apply to you. Number seven doesn't really apply to you. It's just stuff that you can't do much with, uh, and it all kind of rests with the custodian. But number six is the one that's kind of important. And what they what they want you to do in number six is just kind of keep documentation that shows that the recipient of the money being transferred, that third party isn't associated with the firm or located at the same physical address as the firm. So that's it. So without further ado, we already discussed that first question. Let's move on to the second one. If you've taken indirect or direct custody of client funds or securities, have you implemented written policies and procedures to ensure compliance with the custody rule? What they're really just talking about here is, is if you've taken them, have you adopted policies and procedures in terms of direct fee deduction? Have you implemented policies and procedures in terms of standing letters of authorization? Or if you have actual custody, have you gone to the trouble of drafting policies and procedures that help you comply with the custody rule as it applies in your jurisdiction? If we take custody of client funds or securities, have we disclosed it on part one, item nine, uh, and form ADV part two, A, item 15? Part one, item nine, there's going to be two parts. There's there's a part A and a part B. If you've got third-party standing letters of authorization, you should be recording or rather reporting right the number of accounts in which you have those because that's a form of custody and the amount of money that's held in those accounts. That's part A. If you've got actual like getting the audit custody, that all goes in the second chunk of item nine. Form ADV part 2A item 15. That's just the custody section of your what people colloquially refer to as the ADV. It's pretty straightforward. Are you disclosing it so that clients see it? So are clients, funds, or securities held at a qualified custodian? The answer is almost always going to be yes. You're going to have maybe a few one-offs or strange things, but almost all your funds and securities are going to be a qualified custodian. Are your policies and procedures intended to ensure the firm's proprietary and employee funds or securities are not commingled with client funds or securities by the qualified custodian? Chances are the answer is going to be yes to this. Your, your employees are going to have their own stuff in their own accounts. They may be on your platform, but they're not going to be commingled with your uh, client's funds. And, and I doubt that many of you have a lot of firm proprietary funds or securities. Does our firm have a reasonable basis for believing the qualified custodian is sending quarterly account statements to the client? You're probably getting duplicates if they're doing it. So that would certainly be one way that you've got a yes. Also, I, I think every custodian is basically doing it at this point. If we've decided not to take or di uh, direct or indirect custody of client funds, are policies and procedures designed to prevent us from inadvertently taking custody? You're just going to have to look in there to see, you know, do you have you mentioned in there stuff like 
You know, nobody should be becoming a trustee. Nobody should be taking a general power of attorney. Nobody should be a partner uh, or a managing member of uh, a limited partnership, stuff like that. Are we cognizant of situations that can inadvertently trigger custody, such as holding full powers of attorney, having authority to make third-party disbursements under certain circumstances? We've already kind of talked about those. Or possessing check-writing authority. Most of that you get, we've already discussed that. The check-writing authority is really kind of something that clients tend to ask about a lot. You just, you really can't do it. Uh, If they want you to pay your bills for you, unless you want to have custody in those accounts, you probably want to say no. Are we aware of other situations that can inadvertently trigger custody, such as having access to client logins, passwords, giving us the ability to withdraw funds or securities, transfer them to an account not held in client's names? Look, we're just talking about client logins here, right? Held away accounts, 401ks, sometimes it's 529s. If you're registered with the SEC, there's a little more nuance to this. I don't think that that very many of you are, so I'm not going to talk about that. What I'm going to say to you state registered advisors is this is a practice that is strongly discouraged. State regulators do not like this. They regard this as not just custody, but in many cases, a dishonest or unethical business practice or a fraud. They don't like that you're telling the company that you're logging in with that you're the client. They view that very, very dimly, and they think that this is a real problem. Do our policies and procedures address situations that may trigger custody, such as accepting stock certificates uh, or where a related person serves as a trustee? We've already hit that above. And you're not taking stock certificates. I don't know if anybody even delivers stock certificates anymore, but if someone sends you a stock certificate that you're on your client's behalf, you've got to just get that out of your hands in three days and send that back immediately. That's not for you to hold. Do our uh, policies and procedures require when we receive checks made payable to clients, we return them promptly to the sender. There's a wrinkle on this. If someone sends you a check payable to your client, that's another thing. In three days, you got to turn it around and send it back. You should be keeping a log of those things. If your clients send you checks that you're trying to send or that they want you to send to their custodian, you can forward those on to the custodian. I would discourage clients from doing it, but you can log it and do that. Do our policies and procedures address the risk that SLOAs may trigger in in terms of custody? I already talked to you up top about what SLOAs are. Think about it from that perspective. Evaluate your policies and procedures in that respect. Are we aware of the following conditions the SEC that can help SEC registered investment advisors avoid surprise inspection requirements related to custody as a result of SLOAs? You've got to be already getting bored with me. You don't want me to read all those things. Uh, and also, if you're reading it, the answer should be yes, I would think. You must be aware of it. Do we or any supervised person of our firm act as a general partner, managing member, or similar position, a pooled investment vehicle? If the answer is yes, you've got custody. You need to look into that custody rule and see how you need to address that because uh, there's some variation in there for what you do for pooled investment vehicles. Do we receive $1,200 or more in advisory fee six months or more in advance or $500 or more for state registered investment advisor six months or more in, in advance of providing advisory services? This is just going to trigger for you the requirement to put your balance sheet, tack that onto your ADV. Uh, have we complied with additional custody requirements such as net cap, threshold audit of balance sheet stuff, and sending additional billing invoices to clients? That's again, it's something you're going to have to talk to your regulator about. If we provide fee statements to our clients showing the calculation of our advisory fee, again, we talked about this. Are you urging clients to compare them? That may or may not be applicable to you depending on the state. Not every state regulator wants you to do that. So check with your regulator, uh, which is to say, of course, answer the question, but before you get yourself into a panic, check with your regulator. There's some questions about fiduciary duties here now. Are associated persons aware of their fiduciary obligations? I hope the answer is yes to this. They should be looking over your policies and procedure annually. Your policies and procedures should be addressing those things. Uh, and then they, you know, they should be attesting to that. Are associated persons warned that they must avoid unethical business practices? 
you know, I just talked about that above. Same thing. Do associated persons understand the concept of being a fiduciary? That they must always act in the best interest? All this sort of stuff. Look, I, I know where our clients come from. And I'm not trying to avoid getting too deep into this, but I know where, where our clients come from. I know the sorts of folks that we talk to. Uh, I know that they are deeply, deeply connected to being fiduciaries. I know that they are, you know, by and large, fee-only folks. Okay, so I, I believe fundamentally that they do. But again, this is a question that sort of answers itself. If the answer is no to that, you should be talking about it. Uh, if you're reading this and you're confused, you should be looking it up. Do associated person reg- recognize that fiduciary duty goes well beyond suitability standards imposed by FINRA or register- unregistered reps? This is the way that this is worded is not even going to apply to you, right? FINRA doesn't impose anything on you. Suitability is not something that's imposed on you. You guys are you guys have to adhere to the duties as a fi- of a fiduciary, which are much, much, much higher. And, and you should, again, you should know that. Uh, and this really would be if you had folks that are duly registered. I, I sincerely doubt that you've got somebody who's working both as a broker dealer and, and as an advisor. Do we have policies or procedures for documenting and evaluating client suitability? This may be one that you may think to yourself seems kind of silly, right? Again, a lot of you are deeply connected to your fiduciary duties. A lot of you are really close to your clients. I completely understand that. You know, when you think about that, in terms of suitability, you would probably just look back at your, you know, file folder or wherever you keep, you know, your files located and just think, you know, hey, Scott's my client. I know everything about him, you know, from his kid's birthday and how much is in his 529 all the way to how much is in his wife's 401k, how much he owes on his house. Uh, we talk about this stuff several times a year. You know, we're, <laughs> we're as close as you can be to being best friends and also have this kind of a business relationship. Just know that regulators are going to get sassy about that. They're going to want to see investment policy statements and, and risk analyses and stuff like that. Uh, it's just something to think about and to consider. Do we train associated persons regarding their fiduciary obligations, compliance responsibilities? The answer is going to be yes. As long as they're looking over the, the policies and procedures and they're attesting to it, then the answer is yes. Has a firm enacted thorough policies and procedures regarding your fiduciary duty? Again, for, for almost everyone listening to this, the answer is going to be yes. But hey, look, honestly, make sure you're going over, checking uh, on your compliance mail together. To, to ensure that, that that is the case. Are these policies and procedures designed to protect clients and prospective clients from associated persons exploiting client transactions, taking unfair advantage of investment opportunities that would otherwise be available to clients? This is really probably sort of kind of talking about personal securities transactions. Are people who know the sorts of trades or things that you might be doing in your firm, are they putting themselves in a position of front-run clients or get better pricing on securities than some of your clients. Or alternatively, the this could also be the dreaded insider trading stuff, although this really doesn't that really doesn't apply to everybody. Do the policies and procedures help to ensure that associated persons will adhere to their fiduciary obligations? Different way of asking the same question. Are policies and procedures designed to detect and prevent breaches in fiduciary duty? Again, just a different way to ask the same question. Do we revise that list of risks? related to breaches as our business model changes, right? It's straightforward. Have we revised our policies and procedures to address any new risks? Very straightforward. See, again, it's just a different way to ask the same question. Have we revised our policies and procedures in response to customer complaints that might be considered a possible breach of fiduciary duty? I'm not going to talk about this question specifically, but let's talk briefly about client complaints. If you, you're going to be asked by a regulator about whether or not you have a complaint file. The answer that you should give should always be yes. And if you have no complaints, it's empty. If you have not received any complaints, the answer cannot be no. You're required to maintain a complaint file, just an empty one. As silly as it sounds, I know that's where you're at though. 
Are there any additional related business practices we follow that should be set forth in writing? This is really just about you thinking about what your business practices are and what sorts of risks those business practices may pose to your clients, the duty that you have to your clients, stuff like that. Do any of our policy procedures related to fiduciary duty and our code of ethics need to change because of deficiencies observed during regulatory exam or internal review? If you've received a deficiency as a result of your regulatory exam, you will have already changed your policies and procedures, I would hope. If you're conducting internal reviews and you're finding you know, weak points, you should also, you should be making those changes in real time. I would not, I would not recommend sitting and waiting on them. Have we designed and uh, designated, sorry, have we designated an individual to be in charge of compliance, chief compliance officer? Uh, the answer better be yes on this. Uh, you can't operate without a chief compliance officer. And a little bit of inside baseball, that chief compliance officer in almost every single jurisdiction of which I can think is going to essentially have to be a registered person, right? You'll look at that definition of investment advisor representative and the person fulfilling the roles of a CCO, it's going to slide in there. Does that individual conduct an annual exam of our policies and procedures, including our policies and procedures regarding fiduciary duty and our code of ethics? Your state probably requires that you do that. If you're not doing it, you got to get on top of that annually uh, and you should be attesting to it, keeping a record of it in your compliance file. Does that individual review and revise policies and procedures in response to regulatory changes, complaints, and changes in our business model? We've really just kind of talked about that above. If you're doing that, then the answer should, if you're already doing that, the answer should be yes. Does that individual have the authority to implement changes that are necessary to ensure that associated persons fulfill their fiduciary duties? Again, this had better be yes, because if the answer is no, then you've really got an ineffective supervisory situation that's happening. And your CCO, whoever's sitting in that role, isn't fulfilling that duty the way that the statutes and the regs require that they do them. Last question here. Does that individual have the authority to discipline individuals who breach their fiduciary duty uh, or their, rather their fiduciary obligations to clients and prospective clients? Again, the answer had better be yes, or this is not somebody that you can have as your chief compliance officer. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. All right. I know I went over that rather quickly. A lot of those questions should be kind of rote. They should make sense. The reason I went through that quickly is, is I wanted to hit every single question, but I also wanted to get to some of the more important stuff that I talked about uh, in there, some of the more inside baseball stuff, give you the benefit of just you know my experience in dealing with regulators and having been a regulator at some point. I hope that was helpful to you, and I look forward to, well, I would say talking to you in the future, but this is more of a one-way street. Uh, I hope that you look forward to hearing from me and, and Lori as well, uh, both of us in, in the future. Thanks.